Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. You have a vision for your business. Your priority might be to expand facilities or bring in the best talent. At Century Insurance, we listen, learn, and work to understand your business and your plans to help protect your new locations. As your business evolves and your vision comes true, Century. Right by you. Property and casualty coverages and underwritten and safety services are provided by a member of the Century Insurance Group, Stevens Point, Wisconsin. For a complete listing of companies, visit Century.com. Policies, coverages, benefits, and discounts are not available on all states. See policy for complete coverage details. Hey guys, before we get into today's conversation with former Love is Blind cast members Nick Thompson and Jeremy Hartwell, we wanted to say that this discussion will get into claims made against Netflix and Kinetic Content, the production company behind Love is Blind, as well as other shows like The Ultimatum, for example. Jeremy filed a lawsuit against Kinetic and Netflix last year, and the claims we discuss in our conversation have also been outlined in an investigation published by Insider. And we want to be clear that Kinetic Content has denied all of these charges, saying in a statement, there is absolutely no merit to Mr. Hartwell's allegations, and we will vigorously defend against his claims. And now on to our conversation with Jeremy and Nick. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. And this is Love to See It, an obsessively detailed recap podcast about reality dating shows like The Bachelor and other pop culture that makes us laugh, cry, and curse the patriarchy. We can't live with these shows and we can't live without them, but we can break down every juicy moment and unpack all the weird messages these shows send us about love, sex, and dating. Welcome to Love to See It, a podcast about the fact that reality TV sets are workplaces and reality TV stars, yes, they're workers. Exactly. And here on Love to See It, we believe that workers' rights are human rights. Here to discuss their workplace experiences on season two of Love is Blind and what they'd like to see for the future of the reality industry are former cast members and co-founders of the UCAN Foundation, Nick Thompson and Jeremy Hartwell. Welcome to Love to See It. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having us. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to uh, be around people who support basic human rights. Yeah, yeah we're thanks, really... Thanks so much. We're into those. Yeah. <laughs> we're really excited to have you guys here and and that you've been pushing this conversation forward. So we wanted to start just by asking a little bit about the foundation, and we'll get more into it at the end. You recently launched You Can seeking to sort of expose and address exploitative treatment of reality TV cast members. How long has that been in the works for you guys? It's been in the works for a very long time. I think um, 
it's it's been a concept and an idea we've discussed um, for at least seven to eight months, right? But it's all about timing. It's when's the right when is the right time to bring it forward? And so it's only been a foundation for um, less than two weeks at this point, right? So we launched it right around the same time the Business Insider article came out. And I mean, there was obviously a reason for that. We wanted to maximize the exposure. But before I pass it off to Nick to give his thoughts, I think it's important to address that like, while the exploitation and the abuse and exposing that is important in helping people understand why the UCAN Foundation exists, that isn't its mission or purpose, right? The mission or purpose is to lead um, a compassionate and ethical conversation around how we can change the production and distribution of reality TV going forward. And from my perspective, as Jeremy liked to point out earlier this week, when I told him this will never work um, at <laughs> my birthday party last year, um, but seeing the the evolution of this um, and living through what I've lived through personally, both you know, during the show, post-show, post-airing, um, has really opened my eyes to the impacts that, um, you know, these reality TV shows have on someone's someone's mental health. And, you know, you, you, you get a lot of folks that are like, oh, well, they signed up for this. Well, no, I didn't. I signed up for a psychology-based reality TV experience, right? I signed up for um, being around 29 other uh, men and women that had been psych evaluated and were there for the right reasons. I was there because they said, we give you mental health support throughout the entire process. Um, and, you know, up to, I believe it's $5,000 in worth of therapy post-show, all of which was impossible to take advantage of. And <clears throat> finally, for me, it was like, there needs to be some fundamental change in how we do this because you need to do proper psych evaluation. You need to make sure that everybody understands exactly what they're getting into and understands that like you may not have access to food and water the entire time. You, you, <laughs> we may break our end of the contract with what we do, which is exactly what happened with, um, you know, kinetic. And so for me, it was like, it's time to support people. It's time to make sure people know what they're getting into. It's time that we change the industry to provide mental health services pre to prep, during to navigate and post to navigate. And that needs to be from an outside agency in my perspective so that it can't be used for uh, you know, manipulation tactics or in the favor of production so that we can actually protect people and human beings. Um, because you know, I, I'm sure you've seen some of the things that it says in the contract of, oh, you may be completely um, you know, defamed, you may be ridiculed and you may, all this stuff, but like you don't really know when you're going into this um, you know, that you're going to be edited out of order or that they're going to take something you said one scene and then put it in another scene. And even if you think, you know, like you don't know until you go through it. And so I think we're uniquely provided or uniquely exists to do that. Absolutely. And I think you're, you know, you just touched on a lot. And before we get into all of those details, we wanted to just back up and kind of look at the very beginning of your love is blind journeys like, what was the casting process like for both of you? And why did you end up on this show in the first place? Yeah. So for me, I actually got ma I got reached out to you by someone on Hinge that I matched into. So a dating app. <laughs> and her first message was, hey, I've got a boyfriend, but I think you'd be great for this reality TV show I'm casting for. Here's my Instagram. Check me out. 
I initially thought it was bot or a spam. At but, least it was very um, transparent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you think about it, that's a pretty legitimate channel for a reality TV dating show, right? But, um, you know, when I checked out her Instagram, I saw that she was related to a casting company and it seemed legitimate. And I think it's important to note that I have never really watched reality TV, right? I'm not against it, but it just has not interested me. I've probably seen a handful of episodes of Survivor, right? But... Um, to me, one of my core values and ethos is trying new things and pushing myself outside of my comfort zone because these are the only ways that we can grow as individuals. So when I looked at this and I saw that someone had reached out to me, it kind of checked all of those boxes, right? Being in front of a camera, going on reality TV, it's all, you know, it was a scary prospect. So I was like, hey, this, this works for my core values. I'm going to try it out. I'm going to put my hat in the ring and see where it goes. And I think I never expected to be casted. I, I don't start things without intending to be successful, but I realized there was so much outside of my control in this. And so when I first decided to um, apply, I didn't expect to actually make it a year later um, onto the show. So it, it, it wasn't so much my interest in reality TV as it was a chance and an opportunity to push myself outside of my comfort zone. Nick, what about you? So I, I pulled this up really quickly because I've, I've talked about this, but I've never shared the message. So I got messaged on LinkedIn um, and I'm not going to say who she was actually awesome. Um, she was, was so transparent to the extent I believe she probably knew, knew. Uh, but anyway, I got a message on LinkedIn that says, Hey, Nick, you look great. Are you single by chance? I'm casting Love is Blind for Netflix if you're interested. I'd love to give you the details and see if you'd be a good fit. Smiley face. So wow. <laughs> that's straight to the point. That's straight to the point. And so um, I immediately questioned it, of course. And I have never really watched a lot of reality TV. Um, I watched one season of The Bachelor, ironically, Nick Vile's season. Um, but... Um, for me, I was like, okay, let me check this show out and see if this is something that I think can work for me. And when I watched it, um, season one, I was immediately drawn to the fact that this eliminates some of my main critiques of dating. Um, so one of my big critiques is that everybody thinks they have endless opportunities on dating apps and in the real world. And so like the moment something may be slightly challenging or questionable, or maybe it's a red flag. Uh, people are gone. Or in some cases, there isn't that initial, you know, crazy spark um, that usually burns out. And so people will will be on to the next. Or in some cases, they already have, you know, multiple dates lined up and they're not really giving anyone attention. And then, of course, there's the distractions of the world and work and, you know, society and all of the, all of the things going on in our culture. So I felt like eliminating all of that, I would be able to go in and, and just be myself. And I was at complete peace with the fact that I could get married or I could go home. And so walking in there, I just had that mindset. And I'm like, I honestly don't really care what people think about me because I know that I've done a lot of work and I try really hard, um, to do the best that I can and to do the right thing. And, and, um, you know, someone's going to really like that, or they're going to say that's not for the show or, um, you know, somewhere in between. So, um, you know, I took that mindset and went through the rest of the casting process. And that ha that uh, DM came in, when did that come? November of 2020. Um, so deep in pandemic land, deep yeah. in pandemic land. And so um, from what I understood is I went through a number of interviews. I went through a psych evaluation. I did a test. Um, I interviewed with a psychologist. Here's something else I want to share too. Like I've been with my therapist now for six years. It was four, 
four at the time. Um, my therapist wanted to talk to the show psychologist because she didn't want me going into a scenario that would set me back, um, both mentally mm-hmm. from like all the work that I've done, you know, managing my own depression, um, but also uh, just from like being ready for a relationship. And um, she, so she actually interviewed the psychologist herself uh, on the phone oh. and then gave me her blessing based on what the psychologist said on how wow. this is different than other shows. Um, you know, he, everyone's there for the right reasons. We've casted people that are, are not looking to be influencers or not looking for fame. And um, so they, they, and she had watched the show too. So she wasn't, you know, oblivious, but she gave me her blessing after talking to the psychologist Um, so the whole process, like I took it very seriously because I wasn't going to go into, you know, um, any type of show that I felt was, was, you know, dirty or, or dirty is not the right word, but like, you know, that, that wouldn't suit my personality type and what I'm looking for, which was, I was there to find love. I, I didn't have any ulterior motives. I don't really you know, care that much. So I just say like all of a sudden, like I'm going through the casting. I remember where I was here in Chicago when I got the call. Uh, they told me I was cast. It was probably three weeks, four weeks before the show started filming. And I just remember, I'm like, they're like, do you have questions? I'm like, I'm sure I will, but I don't right now. And, um, (laughs) that was it. It was like a three minute call. Um, and, and it just kind of hit me. And then the next thing I know, I'm like there and it's, it just all happened so fast. That's wild. I, I, I feel like I've never heard of a psychologist to psychologist sales pitch for a reality show. <laughs> but it's interesting though hearing you two talk, like the, there are two tactics that I feel like we really hear a lot with reality dating show casting. One is like foot in the door, like just send in your application, just try it. You probably mm-hmm. won't get cast. Like, what's the harm in just filling out this packet? And then you keep going down, you keep going down, and suddenly you're, like, on a reality TV set. <laughs> and the other is, like, oh, this is about love. It's not about, you know, sell- selling a-, a fantasy of what the show is when the experience might actually be quite different. And it sounds like that's something they really leaned on with both of you. No, I, I want to, like, really cement what Nick said based on my own experience. And... The, the entire casting, I think I was reached out to a bit before Nick, but the entire time, you know, initially I asked the question, I'm like, hey, I have like 200 followers on Instagram. I think my last post was two years ago. Like I, you know, I, I do have an understanding of, okay, why would they want to cast me? Right. Because there's, there's gotta be some incentive around, um, profitability. And I understood that going into it. Right. So I asked the question and they specifically said over and over again, we are not looking for influencers. We are not looking for people who like social media. We are looking for normal people like you who don't have a strong media presence, who are interested in finding love. Right. Call, you know, I'm happy to admit I was naive going into it because I absolutely believed it. And, you know, Nick, you re- <laughs> you absolutely reminded me when you told that story. Uh, I had the exact same experience when they called me. Uh, it was like a two minute conversation. I was like, um, I was like, really? What the hell? <laughs> like, I was just shocked. Yeah. And um, I didn't have any questions. But again, it felt like a, a whirlwind because the next thing I knew I was there. Um, right. I felt the same way. And I just remember people telling me like my friends. And I only told a handful of friends. I told my six closest friends and I told my sisters and then obviously my therapist. And they all were like, you're going to get married. Like you're ready. Like you're, that's why you're being cast because they need people to actually have their shit together for lack of a better word. And so, um, you know, that, that is the way they sold it, but I'm, I'm very curious how they sell it to some of the people, 
um, and how some of the people present themselves. Because I can tell you, day one in the lounge, day two in the lounge, day three in the lounge on the men's side, like there were conversations going on with these guys saying, oh, I need to lock someone down. Um, you know, to get to Mexico, you get to Mexico, you get more followers, or I'm picking this person because I think that will be the best storyline to tell to help me get further down the line. And these conversations are, are, are going on around me. And, and, you know, Danielle and I connected. I don't, you guys watched it, right? Yeah. I assume, but I don't like to assume. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Avidly. we, right. Yeah. We've seen it all. <laughs> <laughs> we connected right away. And, um, you know, day three, I think it was, she said to me, you know, it's you or go home. And I said, okay, it's you or go home. And that was that. Everyone looked at that as like, a, oh my God, Nick just secured his trip to Mexico. Not Nick just fell in love, you know? And it, so it's, it, yeah. it just created this like rush. And it was very, um, it was very hard to see because I, and this is, you know, part of the reason I, I, advocate for this is because a lot of people don't really know who they are and they don't really have their core values figured out yet. And they're still, they're still trying to, to learn that. And they're still trying to learn how to, you know, show up in the world and that's okay. Like we're all works in progress. I, I am the same. And, um, you know, I have a, a friend that I made who reached out to me last October. Um, and she was cast in North Carolina's love is blind, which is filming right now. I was just there earlier this week. Um, and she said, you know, I relate to you. I think I'm ready. Do you think this, you know, this is the, what's the experience really like? And so I explained mm -hmm. it to her and she opted out because I said to her, I'm like, you may be going in there for the right reasons and you may be in love with someone who took acting classes and is pretending because they want to get to the next level. And they're either going to leave you at the altar and, and take that route of fame, or they're going to say yes. And you might be marrying someone that's not really there for the right reasons. That's not always the case, but as the seasons go on, it, it becomes a little bit more obvious that you can get very famous off of going on this show. Yeah. I mean, the truth is there's just a lot of different incentives and reasons why someone might go on a reality show. And, you know, I think often it's for more than one reason. Like you might be ready for love and also think, well, maybe there will be an upside financially if, if I, you know, if I don't find love. Um, and that is definitely something that's been a discussion in, in like the bachelor world mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that. You touched a little bit on the contract, um, and certain elements of the contract have been reported on like a clause that contestants would have to pay $50,000 if they left the show without producer approval. Did that clause or anything else stand out to you guys when you were signing contracts? Nick, I know you mentioned the like, you, we are allowed to defame you. Right, right. <laughs> part. So, um, and, and here, here's the, you know, on the defame thing, like, okay, you want to have that in the contract. You want to say we can edit you however you want. You want to fine provide help for people who are misrepresented or misrepresented themselves which happens in these intense environments and give them support to navigate it. All they give you is this 30 minute meeting with a psychologist where he's like, if there's a mean comment, delete it and block the person. Okay, great. We've all been doing that since the beginning of social media. We don't need that advice. We need actual coping mechanisms and tools and how to, how to respond instead of react to negativity and all of this stuff. And they don't give you any of that. So that being said, um, you know, I, I yeah. think that's such a important thing. And I forgot, I forgot the first part of your question or the other part yeah. of the question. 
Well, I can I can I can touch on that, Nick. I want to provide a little context on liquidated damages because it's a legalese term. So I my first job was contract management for about seven years. And I'm not a lawyer, but like I've approached contract law and interpretation. I've written clauses, I've negotiated contracts. So I'm actually very familiar with liquidated damages. And they're not in and of themselves a particularly egregious clause, right? What it basically means is when you have two parties entering into a contract and it requires performance from both parties to satisfy the contract, what it's supposed to say is like, look, if one party unilaterally decides they're not going to like agree to the terms of the contract or perform, there's a cost to the other party for that. But I think the really awful part of it was that I never expected, that just blew me away, is how they use that as a cudgel to keep us Mm. from leaving, right? It was a threat. It was like, if you don't do what we say, if we catch you outside of the hotel room, if you don't listen to the producers, um, we're going to kick you off and you'll have to pay the $50,000, right? And that's where it really gets, that's not what liquidated damages is. Liquidated damages is not a club. It is not a threat, right? And I think it's also to, it's important to note, it it was unilateral. It was one way. There was no penalty that we could recover for them breaking the contract on their end. Right. If you look at it almost as, I mean, a situation of like an employment contract, like the idea that Don't if call you quit us your job, are going to trigger. <laughs> yeah, God forbid. <laughs> oh, yeah. And we will get into that. <laughs> the idea that they can like enforce you showing up to like a workplace every day, regardless of how you're being treated, or you have to pay hun- like tens of thousands of dollars to a company. I think most of us would be appalled at the idea that our company would be allowed to treat us like that. And so the fact that it's kind of standard in reality show contracts or seems to be is, I think, should shock everyone. It was was the fact that they called it liquidated damages that is what makes it really insidious. Right. And they've escaped labor laws for what? When was Survivor 2000 or something like that? They've escaped labor laws for almost a quarter century. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we will we'll get a little bit more into your experiences during filming and the rest of your story. Can you keep up? I like love it. Okay, so you got engaged. Congrats. Now you may be wondering what comes next. If you're planning a wedding, the first thing you need to know about is Zola. With Zola, you can plan your entire wedding in one convenient place. From the day you get engaged and search for the venue to the day you send out your save the dates, make your registry, and even taste your cake. Zola has literally everything you need to make the whole process super easy and actually even enjoyable. There's even a five-star app that helps you plan on the go or, you know, from your couch, which is certainly how, uh, if I was planning a wedding, I would definitely want to do it as loungily as possible. <laughs> so important. I also just know myself. I I know that planning any kind of event, like even a birthday party, can get very stressful. And so it's been really cool to see friends use Zola. It really seems to make everything a lot less stressful. And as a frequent wedding attender. I love to be able to hop on that Zola registry and just purchase a gift. Easy peasy. I know I've done it. I won't forget. Thank you, Zola. Yeah, everything's all in the same place. It's perfect. Start planning at Zola.com. That's Z-O-L-A.com. Article believes in delightful design for every home. And thanks to their online-only model, they have some pretty delightful prices, too. 
Their curated assortment of mid-century modern, coastal, high Tyler Cameron, industrial, Scandi, and boho designs makes furniture shopping simple. Plus, they're dedicated to really thoughtful craftsmanship that honestly stands the test of time and looks good doing it. Article offers fast, affordable shipping across the U.S. and Canada. Plus, they won't leave you waiting around. You pick the delivery time and they'll send you updates every step of the way. I have long been an article girly, like every room of my house my house, my apartment, (laughs) you can see article furniture in. Most recently, we updated our balcony, you know, just in time. It's finally balcony season again, finally warming up in New York. And I have been out there with my coffee, sitting in the toady beach sand dining chair, which is a great little lounger for a small space. Again, New York City apartment. And uh, it just really, like, elevates our deck. That and the ottoman we bought to go with it, so comfortable, so chic, also can withstand a whole lot of rain. So important. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. They're having their Memorial Day sale from May 13th to May 27th, which would be the perfect time to use your store credit on top of sale prices. To claim, visit article.com slash LTSI and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash LTSI for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list, as they should, because it's very important. If that's you, then make this year the year you finally check it off your list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Wow, that is really fast. Their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning link... Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I personally used Babbel before I headed off to Paris for three weeks, and it was so helpful just kind of giving me back the basic understanding of French, allowing me to interact with people in restaurants, in shops, and, you know, just not make a total fool of myself when in a foreign country. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash LTSI. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash LTSI. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash LTSI. Rules and restrictions may apply. And we are back. So you have alluded to, you know, lack, things like a lack of access to food and water, which to me was one of the most shocking pieces of the insider investigation. Um, Having covered The Bachelor for years, there are a lot of tactics that we know that The Bachelor production uses to elicit emotional reactions from people. But one thing we've never heard is lack of access to food. Like when they're in the mansion, a producer like goes grocery shopping and gets anything that they put on a list like frequently. And so I'm curious if you could share a little bit more about what conditions were like during filming and if there's anything else that shocked you 
about um, those conditions and specifically about the pod portion of the experience? Because Jeremy, I, I know that's what you were there for. I guess for me, there were a couple things that were very um, alarming and I feel like communicated, but not communicated effectively. So first, as soon as you get there, you arrive at um, the LAX airport and you're gathered up by um, a wrangler and told you can't talk to any of the other people here. So all 15 guys there, we, we're not allowed to talk. Got to save it for the camera. Then I guess the next part was we go to this um, to the set and they take all of our phones. They go through all of our luggage. Um, they lock them away and our wallets and passports and anything that you have that identifies you or a credit card or anything like that. Um, so you have nothing of your personal belongings. Um, and they lock them all in a bag, take the keys, and then you don't see them again until you're done. And so that was a little bit alarming. Now, I, as I assumed, I knew they would take the phones and I was okay with that. Like I had arrangements at work where they had my producer's number and didn't know it was my producer, but like had a number that they could reach me if they needed something. Um, but other than that, like I got, I understood that I wasn't gonna be able to call anybody. But I didn't understand that I wasn't going to be able to leave my hotel room or that I wasn't going to be able to interact with other people. And so when you go in your hotel room for two days and you're not allowed to leave without permission, you don't have a room key. So you're sitting in this hotel room. If you want to go to the gym, you, got, you get a half hour that you can schedule with one of the Wranglers. If you want to go sit at the pool, same thing. Um, if you want to, to talk to your neighbors or something, don't get caught. And that to me was like... <laughs> <laughs> very, very unnerving. And then on top of it, like you don't have internet in your room. So they, we had YouTube TV or YouTube video at first, took that away. Um, so all we had was like literally to entertain ourselves was anything that we brought from like a book perspective or watching regular satellite TV. No one does that. Um, so yeah, <laughs> so that was alarming to me. And then the the ability, the lack of ability to like accommodate you know, dietary preferences. So I drink a ton of water and I drink a ton of coffee and that's it. Um, and alcohol, but that <laughs> in reasonable amounts. But so for me, it was, it was like, I couldn't get the coffee that I needed in the morning that I was accustomed to. I couldn't get the water that I was accustomed to. And he would ask and ask and ask, and I intermittent fast. So like, I don't eat breakfast, but like, I, I also have some dietary preferences. Like they couldn't meet them. They knew of them ahead of time. I've just, I talked to them and I'm like, here's, you know, what's important uh, for me to, to have access to and just not being able to get water. Like I lost 15 pounds in the first three weeks, which was two weeks in the pods, one week in Mexico. If you go back and you watch me at the end of Mexico, you can compare my face. You can see it in my face. Oh and my it was, God. yeah. And it's because I couldn't eat. Um, and then in Mexico, like they literally didn't give you food and then shut off your ability to order it um, from the from the TV. So and again, no water. So it was just it was just awful. And I I mean, one day while filming, I got a migraine and had to go back to the hotel for a few hours because it was just I was dehydrated, I was exhausted, um, and I, I thought for sure they were going to send me home when that happened. Um, and it was funny because all they kept asking me as I was like, I need to go home. Like I can't open my eyes. I you know I got sick to my stomach and all of this stuff. And they're sitting there like, well, do you have any connections here that you need? To? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> but like, I really, really need to like get someplace dark. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think um, just to, just to add to that, you covered most of it, but really 
you know, there's this common refrain from critics of this who are like, oh, you you poor reality TV star, you didn't get your dietary preferences, wah, wah. Like, I lost about 10 pounds after only one week. And it, and it wasn't because I was exercising, you know, four hours of sleep, at, three to four hours of sleep a night, you don't have the energy to exercise. So regardless of what you think of the food situation, every single cast member I've talked to has lost significant weight, right? So look at the results. Um, something's not right there if that's what's happening to everybody. And the second thing is with the water, again, this has been um, this, this has been discussed a lot to this point, but the tap water in the set didn't work. It's not hooked up. We asked for it to be hooked up even, and, it, and they didn't do it. And I think the one thing that continued to bother me is they actually did come a couple of times and say, hey, we're going to do a Costco run or something. What do you guys want? Um, we created a list. We never got the stuff that was on the list. They like, did they bring bananas when we asked for them. Yeah, we got some <laughs> bananas occasionally. And there were these like gross hard-boiled eggs that people would end up fighting over because it was the only thing in the fridge. Here's the thing, right? They didn't have any water available on set. If we wanted water, we would have to ask for a PA or, I mean, yeah, a production well, they, they would. I mean, they would put a 24 case in for the day, and there's 15 guys there. So there was, like, limited food yeah. and limited water, is what you're saying. But once that was exhausted, there it was very hard to access Impossible. more. Yeah. I just want to make sure we're being, like, totally Yeah, and they would, they, would bring you, they would bring you one yes. bottle of water at a time. One bottle of water at a time. And that's in the hotel, too. Like, when you're yeah. isolated, I remember I'd be like, hey, can I get two bottles of water, please? Like... That's kind of how it was. I'd make I'd make use of the tap at that point because I realized I mean I realized I wasn't getting bottled water, so at the hotel I would definitely drink. But we were only there. Aside from that first day, we were only in the hotel like three to four hours a night, and you use that to sleep. Oh my god! I mean, right. when you talk about the kind of weight loss, you're t like that is like an extremely dangerous rate of weight loss to be losing like five to 10 pounds a week. And I remember I noticed it right before the reveal because, um, and the proposal, which were a day apart. Um, when I put, when I, I bought two new suits, right? One for proposal, one for reveal, which is what they have you, they recommend you have two suits. Mm -hmm. I got them tailored and it was like droopy. And I, oh. yeah, like, and that's when I was like, oh my gosh, I'm like my belt, I'm in like one further notch. I'm like, my pants are falling down. My jacket's a little droopy. That's when I realized like, oh my gosh, I have like significantly lost weight over the course of a couple of weeks. Wow. That's, that's absolutely horrifying. I mean, also like when we talk about dietary preferences, you know, it's, it's not humane to, to keep people from food that they, that they need in order to be able to, to eat in a healthy way. Like I'm sure if someone were to say like, oh, I'm gluten intolerant and they That's only me. gave me pizza every day. <laughs> right. We would understand, I hope, that that is not not a humane living condition for someone who's not being provided with food they can safely eat. That's not like nitpicking. It's not being a diva. Like you need right. to be that's, able to provide people like with the meals that they that they're able to eat in a healthy way. And that they would eat on their own. Like it's not that I understand that, you know, there's 30 of us, but like, it's not that hard to manage to people's schedules that they're accustomed to so that you can keep so that they can keep their circadian rhythm in the right way. They can keep their, uh, you know, uh, uh, distance between meals in the right way. They can consume the right amount of beverages um, that they're used to. And it just it just felt like they didn't care about any of that. That was not a priority. Um, and maybe, you know, in a best case scenario, they just never thought of it before, but there's definitely 
potential for nefarious action there to to put you in that state of of disorganization and and um you know really just struggle right your decision making the last thing they want is for you to keep your circadian rhythm intact (laughs) well yeah i was gonna say i don't i don't know of any reality shows where they're prioritizing uh sleep well getting getting us like getting getting cast members proper food and hydration is the least challenging logistical um operation on a set like that right (laughs) Like the excuse of, oh, well, we're just too busy or whatever. I mean, that's ridiculous. That is the easiest thing to do, considering the scope of what was being done there. I mean, scripted TV shows and movie sets, and I have a lot of friends who work in those industries, like they have craft services. They have a buffet essentially available all day, (laughs) every day they are shooting, even when the hours are weird. Like that is- Because of SAG. That is just part of what it is to be- on a set and providing, um, yeah, very basic things that human beings need to function in a very basic way. Yeah. And also actors and actresses are allowed to communicate with their families. They're allowed to go back to their home or a hotel overnight where they have freedom to do what they want to do to recharge. And, um, you know, I get the nature of the show and, and, you know, I get the, um, you know, you have to take extra precautions to make sure people can't find out who they're talking to on the other side, make sure you don't see one another ahead of time. Like I get that, but there's also so many little things you could do to just make sure that, you know, we're allowed to be social and we're allowed to feel connected when we're in this hyper state of a, of a pressure cooker of life altering decisions that we're making every single day. And we have no support system, none whatsoever. Yeah. Another good example is, I don't remember the exact wake up times, but typically, you know, in the pods, it was like 7 a.m. or something in the hotels we had to leave. Um, And it was like a 30 or 45 minute drive to the set. And I remember the first two to three hours we would be on set. Nothing was happening. Right. There was no filming. There was no dates. They woke us up early to get us on set to do nothing. Right. So instead of using that time to let us sleep in, to let us recharge, um, you know, to maybe get get a legitimate like breakfast or something, um, which, by the way, they specifically instructed hotel staff not to talk to us and not to give us any food or water or anything. Um, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Jesus Christ. Yeah. So uh, the more you look at it and the more you reflect on it, the more just um, malicious it looks like. And I, I can, you know, disclaimer, I can only speculate, right? But I speculate from a rational, logical perspective when I look at the incentives and I, you know, understand the outcomes that they're looking for. And with, an, with a, a basic non-scientific understanding of manipulation tactics. Yeah. And two, keep in shocking. mind for both of you and everybody listening, like they had our wallets. We couldn't order food. We couldn't order water. I couldn't order DoorDash. I remember the one day, um, you know, the Wrangler's like, all right, it's Chick-fil-A for dinner today. I'm like, well, I don't eat chicken and I'm gluten-free. So <laughs> what, am, like, what do I do? And I think I ordered like two orders of fries. Like I, it, it's, and that was my option. And I'm like, and can I get some extra right. water? But yeah. you also, <laughs> I'm sorry, you also I planned can- a wedding. You have to be <laughs> able to, like, it's so easy to know that you might need to be able to uh, accommodate something besides chicken sandwiches. But to like, you also, a group of you also can't leave. Like, th- think about it. We don't have any form of ID, we don't have any form of money. Imagine if, like, uh, can't order room you know, service. Nick, Nick was running around the streets of LA saying, I'm being held captive against my will <laughs> on a reality TV show. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have no money and no forms of ID. Um, you know, you it really is like 
it's it's captivity in a sense because there's there's very little you can do to act like even forgetting the penalty um you really just can't leave yeah they have all they have all your stuff and and even if you go into an experience understanding that like you're not going to have a lot of freedom of movement you're not going to have access to your you know, credit card and your phone, even if you know all of that, I think there is an expectation then that those like basic needs mm-hmm, are going yeah. to be provided for. 100%. Because I do think that there is like, there's, there is this, yeah, understanding that being a part of a reality TV show does include a lot of limitations. And that is part of kind of what you're signing up for. But this goes even like beyond those things, which are like debatably ethical. Yeah, yeah, you just assume your basic human rights will be met when you sign that contract. Like yeah, being, being able someone, to go to the bathroom when you want, think little little things like that. Whenever you have that much control over someone, there is a duty of care there, right? Whether it's a child yes. or yeah. someone who's imprisoned or someone who you have all their money and their right. wallet and their phone, you have a duty of care to meet those those basic needs. Uh, Jeremy, you you ended up leaving after a week was that the whole pod portion or if not like how did your journey come to an end um so i'm not going to get into specific details um because again i'm very careful not to expose like truly behind the scenes things that aren't relevant to the exploitation or the abuse um i i i respect the process in that perspective and i also understand like that's you know i'm they do sue people. Um, and so there's a line I'm not willing to cross. Um, so I will say, however, it was, it was for half of the pod sessions. I will also say that there is an early exit for different reasons for five women and five guys. Um, and I was part of that initial early exit, but I was kept a day later, um, presumably to have a storyline crafted about me that didn't actually end up being aired. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. So So I can't get into more details beyond that, but um, it just, you know, looking back on it, it it just continues to reinforce this notion of they didn't want you to actually make a connection. They don't, they don't want you to like truly find love. Um, It's only to, if, if you do, it's because it happens to be incidental to their purpose of creating the relationship archetypes that they need to create the drama, right? Um, and they for sure have relationship archetypes all set out at the beginning, and they pick certain people to fit these roles. Um, so, again, is it scripted? No. Is it most Outlined. likely manipulated and forced? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. I think it's clear to the viewer that, Nick, you were in the, like, the golden couple archetype, that you were, you and Danielle were supposed to be the couple that, like, makes us all believe in true love. You connected so quickly in the pods and you ended up getting married at the altar. So you did end up going on to the Mexico portion of filming, getting married. How did the experience for you like shift after the pod portion ended? Good question. So in Mexico, um, I mean, it's well-documented what happened in Mexico. Um, I think everyone in the world knows at this point, but um, what was different there is once you, so you, you get engaged, then you get 25 minutes at the reveal to, to spend together. And then they separate you for, I want to say three, four days. You can't talk to them, can't see them. And then everybody goes to Mexico, you quarantine a couple days, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then you go to the resort. So it was, f- 
I, I think it was four days that we didn't get to see each other after that. And so, by the way, you're isolated in a hotel and then in Mexico in a hotel. And so you're very much, you know, gaslighting yourself in a sense. Well, what happened? Well, do they like me? They think I was physically attractive. Everything seemed fine. But, you know, you're not you're not building that momentum that you need in any kind of relationship. Um, you have a lot of time to stew. In your own. And sit yeah. with your own, in your own brain. Yeah, stew in your own juices. And so that was, <laughs> that was really hard um, from that perspective. Yeah. And then, you know, seeing each other for the first time. And they switched our producer. They brought a producer in from another show, um, which was uh, alarming in a sense, because I was like, wait, why wouldn't we just use our producers that we've had this whole time that know our story, that know, know our strengths. And like, you know, I, again, naive, I thought they were just going to let us be. And, you know, we were actually talking in Mexico after we got there that we didn't even think we'd go to Mexico because we were too boring. Um, so, you know, getting to Mexico and, and still like the water stuff, we had a, a COVID, incident. So we shut down the first day and we didn't film, which was great for the relationship. But, um, you know, again, we, we had two bottles of liquor. We did not have very much water. We did not have very much food. Uh, we ordered food that day. And then after that, they shut the TV off. Um, and then you're, or shut the ability to order from the TV off. And then you're just there and you're filming and you're doing this, this stuff. And, um, you know, you're meeting the other couples and you're, you're, you're doing activities and then you're, you're back and it's five days a week, six days a week. You're filming, um, at night you go back to your regular jobs. Um, they don't care that you have a regular job. Like I literally would put my phone on do not disturb from eight to five because I was not going to deal with that stuff. Like I had a, you know, I had a important, um, role at the time. And so they just don't, they don't really have that, like, understanding that this isn't this isn't real life and they don't really care to try and capture real life um you know once we once we got back aside from maybe like the family stuff but even that like you know I was just talking to my sisters the other day they were here and they were telling me like stuff that was going on when we were filming with my family um you know before we got there so it's just they, they're not interested in capturing the authentic relationship as much as they are telling a, a story um and maybe a storyline that they've already determined right it is ultimately an entertainment product and they know how to do that and they want the story that they want. So you're not filming full time when you go when like you guys went back to Chicago. You had yeah a day were, off of filming a week. You were stuck or, we were stuck in a hotel for a few days, couldn't leave again. Um this time at least together. And then you start filming I I would say it feels like it was five days a week, uh sometimes on the weekends. Uh it wasn't every night, but it was four or five okay. hours at a time. Okay. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. So did, I mean, did you start to get the sense that like they were trying to like plan what those filming sessions would be about or like how those interactions would go on camera or when they showed up to film, was it just sort of like, what are you guys up to tonight? And the cameras are here. Um, it was never, what are you up to tonight? The cameras are here. (laughs) Um, it was, we're going to go meet friends. Um, you know, Danielle, you and your friends will go two hours before Nick comes, and then we'll give you a bunch of tequila, and then we'll have Nick come from a, a after work meeting. Um, 
well, job interview actually, and and be totally sober. And then you and your, I mean, it was just clearly set up. They were trying to tell the story that like Danielle and her friends were immature. It's just so clear when you look back on it Um, or the way they're, you know, they're trying to tell the story that my family is like not nice or they were cold. Like they love Danielle. My sisters loved her like that. And they just don't want to show that. So, you know, it's stuff like that where it's like you can see in the moment, maybe you can't see it, but you can see looking back on it like, oh, that was that was to do this. That was to right. Almost like how can we set up the conditions that might lead a couple to like have a fight? Like, oh, I showed up to this gathering and you're already you've already gotten drunk with your friends and she's like well you were late like just trying to like produce in advance those conditions that cause friction and i'm a very you know typically calm and patient person and like that kind of stuff doesn't aggravate me um and you know you could tell that that bothered them at times when i wouldn't get aggravated at the things they wanted me to or vice versa um another one is they tried to force us to like talk about student loans um because I have student loans, she didn't, and they were just trying to force it. She's like, I don't care. Everyone has student loans. I'm just lucky not to have them. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, you know, I have them. Everybody has them. Not a story there. And so they, you know, they tried to push stuff like Certainly that. Certainly not in America. But they did that right. with Amber. They successfully did that with Amber and Barnett on season one, getting that sit down yes. about her student loans. There was loan a whole debt. finances yeah. talk. Mm-hmm. I know. Um, at any point during filming, Nick, did you consider leaving or or try to leave uh yeah mexico always makes its way into the conversation so um i've told this before so i'll I'll keep it kind of brief i went to the couple reveal party on my own um danielle was sick in the morning and uh for some reason that broke a a covid protocol and she wasn't going to be allowed to film anymore and i was even though i was with her locked in a hotel room literally the entire time (laughs) Um, so that right there seemed to be some sort of um, bullshit, I guess. I don't know if you guys want swearing on the show, but that was... No, we're fine with <laughs> You're allowed to swear. That's fine. <laughs> that was BS. Um, so I went to the party probably two hours and I came back and they, the producer told... And by the way, when I went to the party, I said, I don't want to go. I'm only going because we decided that I'm going to go and I'm not going to stay long and I want to come back. And I'll only go if you put... There was a producer that that we both really liked an associate producer. Uh, I will only go if you put her outside the door. So if Danielle needs someone to talk to or gets anxious, like there's going to be someone there. They told me, no problem. We'll make sure she's there. She was not there. Um, They did not send her there. And then when I come back, they told me, okay, go in there and talk about the party um, with Danielle and sit close to her because you're mic'd and she's not. And I'm like, Okay, like that's weird. Maybe they're just trying to, you know, get everything done on time or whatever. So I go in there and everyone knows what happened in Mexico from there. And we had said, like, okay, we're leaving. Like, we're not doing this anymore. Um, because I got I got aggravated and I threw my microphone at them and said, We're done. Um, you know, she had had a panic attack. Nobody told me. They just sent me in there, you know, laissez faire, like nothing, nothing to see here. Just go get us our scene. Um, which, you know, eventually caused some issues. And then we wanted to leave. We were both saying we were done and they brought all, all the resources over from the show, the executive producer, um, to try and convince us to stay. Ultimately we did. Um, but sometimes in retrospect, I wish we had stood our ground there and and actually left. And just left. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. Obviously it sounds like there was a lot of 
trauma in in the process of making this show. What was it like going through the experience of then having to do promotion for the show and then continuing to film? You know, you guys did After the Altar and the reunion. What was that like, sort of being still in that production period while also trying to process what you guys had just been through? Yeah, we... um. So they literally, I say, they drop you back to reality. The day after your wedding, um, you're just back in real life. You don't hear from them. And then, uh, you know, they pop back up at the the beginning of the year to say, here's the date. Here's the day we announced the cast. Um, and, you know, we struggled the whole time. I mean, it's probably pretty obvious. To anyone. Like, we struggled the whole time. And what happened, um, you know, in between the show and, and uh, filming and the reunion, which we did in, in February of last year, um, you know, we flew out to the reunion not having seen the wedding episode. They give you an encrypted iPad to watch it on the way. Um, and then you go to the reunion and, you know, everybody's on edge because they just watched their season and their edit and their, you know, personal issues and their personal experiences. And look, you know, watching it back is is very hard to do because you almost feel like you're gaslit in a sense of like, I don't remember that happening that way, or there was more that happened there. And you have to like question yourself. And so that was really hard to do. And then to go on the reunion um, and the way they just set up even flying out to the reunion, because you can't fly out with your couple um, or with your partner. And I li- they're literally like, do you have any anyone you don't want to fly with? Do you have anyone that's like a hard no? And I said, shake. I can't stand him. I don't ever want to talk to him. He's not my people. I, I like would never have him in my life. Guess who I flew with? Shock. <laughs> right. And so, uh, you know, you should have been like Danielle. I definitely can't fly out with Danielle. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) exactly. Reverse psychology. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly it. So that was hard. And then we, you know, we just went right into filming after the altar for that. Um, After the altar is it's a little bit of a different experience because you're mostly in your own space. Um, We did rent a house up in Michigan where we threw the party. Um, I will say like. They really gave Danielle and I a lot of creative freedom with that party. Um, you know, it was our idea to throw an 80s party. Um, they, you know. Yeah, you guys genuinely seemed like you were having fun on After the Altar. Like, I remember for us as viewers, it felt like your whole vibe was very different than in the actual Because you're treated a little bit better on After the Altar. You're paid the same but you're treated a little bit better. You're allowed to have your phones. You get a little bit of downtime. You get a little bit of, yeah, it's a much less strenuous production. And also I think that's partially by design because we all have platforms now and you don't want to, you know, put us in a situation where, um, you know, know, we're going to be speaking out about it and we have access to our platform. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, the rest of our conversation with Nick and Jeremy. Can you keep up? I like, love it. I am so glad that it's finally warming up. And it also means that I just want to have fun this summer and I don't want to be worrying about meal prep. And luckily, I can do something about that with Factor, especially because they have so many meal options like Protein Plus, Keto, Vegetarian, 
something for every diet. Their fresh, never-frozen meals are ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Make your whole day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. I love having a few factor meals just sitting in my fridge, especially because I work from home. It's so nice to finish up a taping and not have to figure out what to cook myself. Just look in my fridge and be like, oh, in two minutes, I can be eating mushroom chicken thighs and wild rice or tomato basil chicken risotto or Santa Fe style green chili beef skillet. And they always have a nice like vegetable side. It feels well-balanced. I feel full after, and it's not a headache at all. Head to factormeals.com slash LTSI50 and use code LTSI50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code LTSI50 at factormeals.com slash LTSI50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. Oh, I'm so happy the weather is finally turning. If you, like me, have been wanting to update your wardrobe for the long haul without, you know, spending a fortune, then Quince is for you. You can build up a lineup of timeless pieces that will keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year. Like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. And the best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes those savings right on to you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, as well as premium fabrics and finishes. I love Quince for all these staples. I mean, linen is my favorite summer fabric. They have so many amazing linen staples. I also found my new go-to like summer running around to the playground in the coffee shop bag. It's the pebbled Italian leather front sling bag. I can just fit a wallet and my phone and my AirPods in it, maybe some lip balm. Absolutely perfect. I'm so obsessed with it. And the price was exactly what I wanted to. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash LTSI for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash LTSI to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash L-T-S-I. And we're back. So we've touched on this a few times, but I, I had a couple more questions about like your relationships with producers that you worked with on the show. Like Nick, you mentioned that your producer was switched between Mexico and the pods. Did that happen to anyone else? Did most people, it seemed like, have the same producers working with them throughout or was there like a new crew that was brought in? Like, what do you think happened there? <laughs> Some of it will be speculation, <laughs> but I'll, I'll say. Um, so everybody gets a producer uh, pre-show and you kind of talk to them every now and then, get to know them, like did a virtual happy hour. Um, and then you, you get there and that's your, your producer and they're producing, if I remember correctly, three guys and three girls. And um, to me speculation for a minute, those producers were getting the matches that they had planned. 
pre pre ahead of time. So the three women and the three guys, some of them were one of them was supposed to match for each producer. My take, I don't know if that's accurate. That's how it seemed. Um, mm-hmm. Then when we go to Mexico, like each couple gets a producer and an associate, maybe two associate producers, and then um, for everyone else, they got someone that had been on the show so far. And then for us, they brought in. Um, another producer who I believe was doing the ultimatum at the time, you know, why they brought him in again, I can speculate. Um, he was very open that he has anxiety too, uh, which makes it seem maybe like he was able to understand levers to pull and buttons to pushes, uh, again, total speculation, but I didn't think it was, um, fair to bring in a producer for us, uh, when he wasn't going to see the footage, he wasn't going to be there. Um, he wasn't going to understand like the dynamics of our relationship and, you know, our strengths and our weaknesses and what we're looking for. And so he, he got to kind of come in and just be a kamikaze and not actually work within the foundation that we had built for our relationship. And this is another great plug for mental health support, right? Because this is a pressure cooker and, you know, we have our own mental health challenges as individuals, and then you're coming together as a couple and you're in the pressure cooker and every emotion's heightened and you're going to get in dispute. You're going to get in a conflict. And that's where a, a counselor could come in and help you build healthy habits. They could help you navigate this ex- these extreme emotions and they could help you, you build tools and, and capabilities to like navigate this type of stress, navigate it together as a couple, as opposed to going against each other, which is, you know, what the, the producers are trying to do. So having someone there to step in and help us build healthy conflict habits early on, um, and not just us, all of the couples, I think would be such a differentiator for the way that people build their relationships and for the longevity of their relationships. Yeah. And that's a perfect segue because we really wanted to get into a lot of the mental health stuff because obviously that is something that the Insider article goes into a lot and something that you both have have spoken about and a big area of advocacy. Did either of you directly experience kind of those vulnerabilities that you shared um, maybe in like a space with the psychologist exploited? That is something that's touched on in the Insider article. Um, and for each of you, like, what was the mental health impact of going on the show as a whole? Yeah, I'll, I'll give Nick a break here. Um, yeah, so talking a lot. <laughs> yeah, sorry, we're we're going in on on Nick. Yeah. Um. So ag- again, I I was only on the show for about a week, but I definitely experienced that to where they took experiences that I had in the past, particularly around um really distressing and um, difficult relationships and breakups that I had disclosed to my producer. Because again, they spend, you know, the the two weeks between your your casting announcement um, and the starting, the filling of the show being your best friend and getting all this information out of you, right? And there was one particular moment where, again, this is related to a storyline I think they wanted to create for me. They spent about 30 or 40 minutes digging into this really just distressing relationship uh, that I had actually only after about, you know, I would say 12 to 15 years had recently within months of the show just started to really dig into and get over that it like caused a lot of trauma for me that I had kept buried. And I had a psychologist before the show and after the show. Um, And we had only been starting making a lot of good progress on that. And so, um, and so I think this is backtracking a little bit, but I think the, 
what was really ironic is um, I had similar conversations with my psychologist about the show that Nick had. And he was like, look, I, I think you're just starting to heal and you're just starting to open up about this, which is great. Um, I, I think the fact that you're talking about it openly is a really important healing process instead of just not acknowledging that it ever happened and pretending you're fine. And he's like, look, I watched the show and honestly, uh, I think this could be good for you, right? If you can talk about this in front of a camera, that's really healthy, right? Um, he very much regrets saying that <laughs> after the fact. Um, but again, he looked at the show and he thought this could be okay. And, um, you know, but instead my producer used that and spent about a 45 minute period, just like digging and digging and digging to the point where I was, it was the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to me. But of course this is after I, maybe that's an exaggeration, but it was horrible at the time. And this was after days of food deprivation, sleep deprivation. Um, you know, you're kind of on the edge right now. And I remember feeling a little bit like a zombie, like I'm saying things, I'm doing things. And in the back of my head, there's this little voice saying, why are you saying these things? Why are you doing these things? But you can't really stop. Right. And that's, that's part of the sophistication of psychological manipulation. I think, um, the, the easiest people to manipulate are the ones who don't think they can be manipulated. So, um, it's, and so I don't know I, it I got to a point where, well, <laughs> we can, we'll debate that later. agree to disagree on this, <laughs> Nick Thompson. Um, but it's, you know, I, I was bawling my eyes out and there was like, there was snot running down my face. And this was during one of those interviews. Right. And people, you have to remember the 10 second clip you see of those interviews. It could be a 45 minute to an hour and a half long interrogation because I right. say interrogation because they have a bright light in your face. You can't see anything else. There's the disembodied voice from a shadow that you can see in the <laughs> background grilling you on these questions. And they ask the same question over and over again until they get the response that you want. Right. And so I had developed a, a pretty strong emotional connection pretty early on with someone. And I, I can't say whether or not they uh, reciprocated that. I was led to believe they did, um, both by her and by the producers. But um, again, I can't, I can't speak to that actually being the case. But first, they dug into this traumatic emotional experience that I had just started to get over and just started to heal from. I was bawling, which I'm a I'm like a, a stoic person when it comes to my emotions. I was bawling my eyes out. I had they, they had to stop filming for 10 minutes because I couldn't speak. I was so distressed and distraught. Um, and then after Another that great opportunity over, for the onset psychologist they claim to have to step in and be like, do you need help right now? Like, no one, no one said a word. This? No one's, no one said a word. They let me cry and bawl my eyes out and then waited for me to be able to compose myself until then they just dove right back into it. Um, and then, you know, they got what they wanted from that. And so they, then they led with like this, they started diving into the emotional connection I had with this person that they were, um, they were pushing. Um, and again, I did feel a genuine connection for this person. And so they kept going, oh, you love this person. Don't you want to marry her? All these different things. Right. And, um, you know, I found myself agreeing, even though in the back of my head, I was like, why are you saying that? It doesn't make any sense. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll stop it. I'll stop that particular portion there because again, I don't want to talk about the specifics beyond that. I don't think it's relevant, but sure. it was incredibly traumatic for me when, when that whole, then there were things that happened after that. And when that whole thing was over, um, it was one of the most traumatic things of my life. Honestly, um, I can say that with complete confidence. And then after it was over, they dumped me in a hotel room alone 
Um, and this was sort of off the normal production schedule. And I, I was in there for, I think, 12 hours. I don't remember any of it. My psychologist said I was in a clinical fugue state. Um, and I remember I almost fell out of the van getting into the hotel because I couldn't even stand up. I was so just physically and emotionally destroyed. They left me there in the hotel room. Again, no hotel key, no phone, no anything to stew in my own thoughts. Uh, my Again, my psychologist, who's a PhD in psychology, he said I was likely had a clinical fugue state because I don't remember any of it. Um, and they told me I'm going home. Um, and I remember for about three days after I got home, um, I, I, I told you guys earlier, like my cousin was very worried about me. Um, but on day three, it was like, when you have, when your ears are like clogged from a plane or something and you kind of forget they're clogged and all of a sudden they just like pop open, you're like, oh, um, on, on day three, it was like everything kind of snapped into place. And I think what was most telling for me is my emotions and feelings for this person, which during that three day period, I felt deprived. I felt robbed. Um, I felt like something had been taken away from me. My feelings for this person immediately, like snap of the fingers, went from would consider proposing to her to had a good first date would go on a second date, right? <laughs> and I think there you can form genuine emotional connections, right, in spite of all of this. And I think a lot of couples did. And I think the emotions are real. And I'm not downplaying any true connection made. Um, and I think Nick, Nick probably feels the same way there. But, you know, that emotional trauma of especially after the fact, realizing how much you had been manipulated, it is, it is just devastating to any sense of identity and sense of self. And I spent months working with a psychologist, working with my psychologist to unpack all of this. Um, and he, you know, he used the term PTSD. He used the term fugue state. And this is, this is after, you know, according to kinetic statement, he was only there three days. It made no connections. How could he possibly have anything to say about it? Because you have to be there at least seven to experience trauma. <laughs> That's <laughs> laws of psychology. Yeah. Wow, that's absolutely horrifying. I'm so sorry that you experienced that. And I, I appreciate you saying that. You yeah, know, even the I, next yeah. morning. I can't imagine how hard that must be to come back from. Nick, sorry. No, I was ahead. just going to say the next morning when he was in the hotel lobby, uh, we were all getting ready and he was going back to the airport. They wouldn't even let us talk to him. Like I went over to see how he was doing and they were like, you can't talk to him. What? <laughs> Why not? He's going home. <laughs> like, so it, it's just like they don't even let you try to support someone um, in that situation, let alone offer them any other kind of support. In terms of offering other support, we know that other reality shows, including The Bachelor, um, have a therapist on call. I know that cast members have had very mixed experiences with that, but is that something that you'd like to see happen on future seasons of Love is Blind? Like, should they have a dedicated mental health professional on call that you is actually available to cast members. Yes. My, one of my goals uh, for advocacy with the UCAN foundation is to ensure that um, each reality cast member has access pre during and post mental uh, to mental health counselor whenever they need it. Yeah. And I would like to see them as I alluded to earlier, I'd like to see them step in. So, you know, I think back and I, I commented on this, you know, we have this, this, kinetic bullshit again statement where they said the well-being of our participants is of paramount concern and it's uh, it's we have rigorous protocols in place to take care of people before during and after filming well let me tell you when someone has a panic attack 
like Danielle did in Mexico, wouldn't that be the perfect opportunity for that mental health support or that psychologist that's on set to step in? You think. You're on a, you go on a plane and if someone has a panic attack or has anxiety, flight attendants help you with breathing, bring down the oxygen mask if necessary, um, to see if there's a, a counselor or a doctor on board to come and assist. Like they have better protocols on airlines than Kinetic has with Love is Blind. And airlines should typically not be the standard. I mean, look at the size of the seats <laughs> they give you. It's really not, so if they're not doing a great better, time, usually when you're... <laughs> I mean, flight plane, attendants so are amazing, but yeah. yeah. The, well, I that, learned that, that, I learned that protocol from my friend who is a flight attendant because I asked yeah. her. I'm like, what happens if this happens here? <laughs> and they, wow. they know how to yeah. handle it. I mean, I, it seems like with a show uh, like Love is Blind, like these romance reality shows, there is this sort of... it's. It's sort of like how they say you shouldn't go to therapy with a partner if it's an abusive dynamic, because it also makes you very vulnerable to manipulation if they have access to those like psychological tools. So then you're in this position where you're sort of treating producers almost as therapists. And then if the Mm -hmm. therapist is on staff, they might be confiding in the producers or working together with them. And then those could also be used against you. So like what, how, how can psychological support be included on set in a way that, that isn't as vulnerable it's safe. to that? It's, it's actually, actually safe. Yeah. So let me, it's let me be put it this way for you. Yeah. yeah. It has to be independent. Take a look at what's going on in the NFL with a concussion protocol. If you're suspected to have a concussion, an outside independent physician comes and does an evaluation. Because if the team does the evaluation and this is a key player and they're in the playoffs or playoffs are on the line or Super Bowl's on the line, what are they going to do? Go play with that concussion. So that's the type of model that I'd like to, to see for reality TV is that there's an outside organization, whether that's the UCAN Foundation or something else that comes up a little bit later. And their whole job is to support these reality TV personalities as they're going through these extreme pressure cooker moments. Right. So like a separate organization, but who has a consistent relationship with all of these production companies. Exactly. I mean, I don't I don't I don't know that I would call it a relationship. Um, I, I think it has to be entirely I think it has to be mandated, right? If you're gonna produce these films, you have to have an independent sure, organization yeah. come in. I'm looking strategically, and I think they're, you know, <laughs> a move they might make is to partner with a psychological association who then becomes in bed with them and say they're addressing this. Yeah. Have you guys considered selling out? <laughs> is that something you've looked into? Uh, we've talked I, to Nick Vial about that, but uh, we haven't heard back. Well, well, <laughs> some Nick Nick's insane take on all of this is that <laughs> we're doing this for fame, or that I specifically am doing this because I'm not smart enough to monitor or monetize my Instagram following. A, a nonprofit is probably the worst way to, yeah, to monetize yourself. Yeah, who got famous yourself. off a nonprofit? <laughs> it's you, you literally have. I mean, we're in full compliance of the IRS IRS five hundred one c three, and like we have to be fully transparent where things go. It can't be any individual contra- like individual stakeholders or or needs beyond the the charity. Right? That's if if his accusation is we're trying to make money. Um, we pick the worst way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, nonprofit work, not not notoriously the biggest moneymaker. What could be a more fun and personally (laughs) enriching way to get famous than to (laughs) sue Netflix and also start a nonprofit? Right. Well, then the funny to spend your time. (laughs) Right. We're doing all of this 
for pro bono pro bono yeah. because yeah. it's something that we believe in. And to me, like having lived through my experience and I've never felt as uneasy and as uncertain and as depressed as I have the last six months in my life. And if I have, it's been a day, a couple days, a week, and then I come out of it. But the, the toll that this takes on people, especially if you're, you know, like I'm a, I'm a, unapologetically myself. Like I'm, I'm quirky, I'm nuanced, but I'm genuine. And I really, you know, I, I really took all of this very, very hard. And I've also seen, you know, obviously from my relationship, what this did to Danielle, um, you know, I, mm-hmm. I lived that. So for anyone else to come through and she did too, by the way, for anyone else to come through and invalidate what we've been through both separately and together is just a complete, I mean, it's a, it's a lack of empathy. It's a lack of understanding. And it's also just coming from a place of ego. Yeah. I think sometimes what we see, and I haven't listened to Nick's podcast yet. He's someone we (laughs) have known personally for years, but we were really in strong disagreement with the comments that we've seen about this. Um, And something that sometimes happens, I think, is that people who come out of these shows and do find ways to benefit in ways that they're satisfied with and that feels like adequate compensation for what they went through Mm -hmm. on the show, they're like, well, that's just the right way to handle it. This process worked for me. It could work for you. If it didn't, too bad, so sad. And I'm curious, like, because for some people who came off Love is Blind, there have been, you know platforms developed, there have been projects that have come out of it. Has it been challenging for people that you know from the show or that you've spoken to from other seasons to make that turn towards like, well, we should take on the show instead of focusing on kind of like remaining aligned and and maximizing our platform that we got from the show and monetizing it? I think that's the, that's the mountain. That's the hill we have to climb. Um, you know, I, I think for one, you have to take a step back and say, when people go on a show, whether it's Love is Blind, The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, Love Island, whatever it is, Two Out to Handle, whatever it is, if they're going on there because they want to be famous, that's a total different experience that you're going to have because you're not going to get the same level of emotional investment, right? If you have someone who's going on one of these shows for the right reasons, I was going on this show to see if maybe I could find my partner on there. And then you go through all of this turmoil. Like my priority isn't making money or being famous. I was ready to go back to my normal life the last six months and just forget any of this happened. But then there's reflecting on the experience, reflecting on my own experience, seeing the damage that it's done to me, seeing the damage it's done to others. Um, Even now seeing people still so stuck in stuff that happened two years ago. Like it's so, it's so damaging to see that people can't get out of this, this stuck place. And so, you know, I could monetize my platform. Like I turned down probably hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of things because they don't align with my values and who I am. And so I think like if you have people that do that um, or people, you know, you can monetize your platform and stand up for what's right. It's not one or the other. And that's what I want to challenge other cast members from both my season and other seasons and other shows is you can monetize your platform and still stand up for what's right. And I know anybody who went through a reality TV show experience at their core, 
knows that there are things that can be better and that there are inhumane working conditions, some more than others. And instead of worrying about keeping your access or worrying about um, you know, your, your monetization opportunities, try and do the right thing because the rest will then still come. Yeah. I think it's important. Like the, to me, it's like the collective part that's going to be most powerful, right? Like you two are kind of sticking your necks out. And I also do have empathy for people who, you know, their finances are now wrapped up in certain relationships or or their relationships are wrapped up in then all of these other like professional opportunities. Yeah. And that seems really hard. And I don't think it's necessarily probably so simple as like, you went on there for the right reasons, you went on there for the wrong reasons yeah. because people end up on these shows for so many complex reasons. And I would never blame anyone for taking the opportunities that come. Oh, for for sure. And I think, you know, my take on that is, again, I agree with you 100%, Emma, in the sense that for the people who are monetizing this, that is a rational decision. It's actually irrational. In in a sense, it's irrational if you don't. For most people, it's a rational decision to maximize your monetary, your, your wealth, given the spotlight and the platform that you now have access to, right? That comes back to the fact of how little we were paid on the show for the amount of wealth we generate for these companies. And they pay us $1,000 a week stipend. So I think this is really insidious and it might actually be deliberate, although I don't know if I give them enough credit for if that's too much credit. But it's if so, it's an incredibly smart thing to do because it creates this vicious cycle of reliance, almost like a Stockholm syndrome kind of thing, right? So if your only way to financially make sense of this traumatic experience you just went through is to relive the drama and the trauma by regurgitating, recirculating on social media, and then because Kinetic and Netflix have, and Kinetic is the production company, I'm not sure if we said that, but like if you decide to part ways with them fully or if you speak out against them, they're not going to support you. They're not going to bring you to events. They're not going to bring you to reunions or to premieres, right? So you become reliant on them and they become the source of your, your you're no longer independent, right? It's like you're being sponsored by them. And mm-hmm. again, I don't yeah. blame any single individual that's doing that. I don't. Um, I do find issue if you decide to speak up and say things um, on certain like large platforms instead of staying silent, right? But sure. for, for people who are deciding not to speak out because because of the money issues, that's rational. So I don't put the blame on them. I put the blame on the system that is not compensating them enough in the first place to where they don't have to rely on this stuff, right? Give them residuals. Right. Like, I think that that's sort of what's, yeah, what's at the core here is like, there are a lot of people who are making a ton of money from these shows that aren't even, you know, the producers doing individual manipulations or even the psychologist that's hired. And I think that like a lot gets lost in kind of trying to litigate, are the cast members doing things that are good or bad? Are individual producers often who are working at like for like middle wages, like doing things that are good or bad? And I, what's something I appreciate that you guys have been doing is really bringing up the larger system and looking at these corporate entities who often get off scot-free. Yeah. And and also we know that reality TV, first of all, exploded in large part because of like the writer's strike in yeah. 2007. Um, it's a lot cheaper to produce. And so you kind of can see all of these different exploitations are ultimately connected. And that's where I think that that like collective 
power and organizing is going to be key in creating any sort of lasting yeah, change. I mean, you 100%. guys were getting paid a pittance, right? Uh, I think $1,000 a week, which yeah. you're working like 20 hours a day. Like, that's well, yeah. Ridiculous. So it's, if you if you look at California minimum wage laws, um, they have overtime and double overtime. And if you like create a, a combined wage, minimum wage based on that, it's like $24 an hour is the California minimum wage with all the overtime and double overtime. And what we were paid amounted to like $7 and 14 cents. Yeah. It's, it's ludicrous, especially because yeah, who would want to take on a shift that's 20 hours long? You've got to get paid a, a premium for all that overtime. A lot of reality show contestants aren't paid at all. Like the bachelor contestants are not paid. And so there is this like this industry standard. That's like, if we pay you, you're welcome. How, how are they getting away with that? Or also, if we pay you, you're, you're not authentic. Yeah. Like, I think that that also gets tied up Great in, point. in this. Really yeah, I mean, why, why do you think that they've been able to get away with, like, basically not paying reality show contestants for so long? It seems like such a clear-cut labor I, violation. <laughs> I, have a, I have a couple thoughts on that. And the first and foremost is this has been, this has become the standard. And when something becomes the standard or the norm, people start to accept it. And that is... Um, unfortunate in a lot of cases, but what I would say here is like, even when, you know, we have other people critiquing, oh, why, why are you doing this? Like, this is just how it is. It's like, mm, I don't think so. doesn't have to be that way. I'm a change agent. I've been in organized politics and local movements and in my community, despite what you might hear on the vile files, I've been organizing <laughs> since 2008 and I have been in my neighborhood volunteering constantly being involved in organizations, doing corporate social responsibility through my jobs, like all of this stuff. So I know how this works and I know how when we all come together, it comes from the bottom up. And that's why we need to bring people together because otherwise like the status quo is going to remain and people will continue to be undercompensated or not compensated at all for, um, you know, giant corporations like Netflix to make you know, millions, if not billions of dollars off of you. Um, and another reason I think it's the same is because there's this desire um, to be famous. That's part of our culture. Like, I understand that and I'm not faulting anyone for that. But you kind of get this whole like, oh, you're going to get a big following. You're going to like, you're going to have opportunities to monetize after. And, and sure, if you want to shill products for companies that you would never use or you have never used or, um, you know, you want to shill, you know, different types of, of companies that, you know, may or may not align with, with who you are. Yeah. You can make a lot of money and that's okay. Like, again, I don't blame anyone for monetizing themselves, but I think it's just this illusion that you get these followers and that's your payment that ultimately keeps the status quo. And I don't, yeah. I would happily, happily go back to having 348 followers I had when this started. Um, you know, if if we can get this change and and help people live a better reality TV experience. And also those followers and the ability to monetize isn't guaranteed. Obviously, no. there's like a lot of factors that affect that, you know, lower ratings, people not watch so much content, people moving social media platforms. Like there are all these other forces at play that determine whether you're even gonna get that. It's like multi-level marketing. It's like, we will give mm -hmm. you the opportunity <laughs> to probably fail to make yeah. a lot of money. It's almost a pyramid. You're yeah, welcome. but like a couple, a couple people will, will definitely make a lot of money. Um, but that, yeah, that is not 
how a workplace should function. And I feel like a big shift that needs to happen here is just all of us mentally overtly acknowledging that these sets are workplaces. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I think that the industry has benefited, like the people at the top have benefited by the ability to, to dispute that essentially and like the collective imagination. You think of a show like Love is Blind or The Bachelor, like they have budgets that are like Marvel movie budgets. So it's not that they don't have the money or the means. It's that they're not forced to. They don't have to. And then they have a a reality TV nation that sits here, um, you know, in some cases and are scared to say anything. Like people are terrified. I can't tell you. I mean, managing my DMs right now of people from reality, from food shows, from other kinetic shows, from other other reality shows from other countries messaging me being like, thank you so much. I'm too scared to say something, um, you know, and, and it's just awful. And I can't even like half of the DMs. I'm like, I'm going to have to get back to you on this because there's just so many of them. And it's just like a traumatized nation of reality TV stars that are terrified that if they stand up and speak what their experience was and the damage that this has done to them and, and, you know, the monetary gains or not no gains from it. I think it's, it's inevitable that we see this change, but it's, it's not, it's, it's not going to be easy because people are terrified that they're going to have to, you know, deal with a big corporation like a Netflix or an ABC in court. And how the hell do you do that? Like, honestly, so I lost, I got laid off at the end of last year and, um, Partially, uh, a, a role of that was some of the way that my name was being spoken about in the media. And that, you know, I've had a hard time finding another job. Now, I could turn around and start taking all of the brand deals that come in for things that I don't really use or would never use, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to grind and I'm going to, you know, find my way. But this, like, this, if you think about that, like, part of the reason I lost my job because I can't public speak because they don't want someone in at my work Googling me. Like that's. <laughs> yeah. And that's something we've definitely heard right. about from bachelor contestants yeah. who are not in like the standard, like influencer track professions. Mm-hmm. It's like very hard to go back to your workplace, especially if you get like a villain edit or you're very prominent in some way, those associations and, follow you. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've talked to a couple um, quote villains too. And, and, you know, one was like, I don't even want to take brand deals because I don't want to deal with the comments. And it's just yeah. so you get portrayed in a certain way on TV. That's not an accurate representation of what happened or you were manipulated into it. And then that's just who you are now. And if not, by the way, in the contract, it says every time you violate the story that was told, um, you're you're subject to being sued for a million dollars each time. Yeah, that <laughs> we need to get into that. But look, first, I mean. Jeremy, you you did sue Netflix and Kinetic Content last year, I believe. You filed a lawsuit mm. alleging a number of labor law violations. Uh, I hear a quote from your from your suit. Uh, quote: the the combination of sleep deprivation, isolation, lack of food, and an excess of alcohol, all either required, enabled, or encouraged by defendants, contributed to inhumane working conditions and altered mental state for the cast. Um. Kinetic content, we should be clear at some point in this podcast, has denied all these charges. Uh, They said in a statement, there's absolutely no merit to Mr. Hartwell's allegations, and we will vigorously defend against his claims. So that's out there now. (laughs) Uh, Why do you think it's taken so long for a contestant to to put together a, a lawsuit against one of 
these shows and what made you and your legal team think that this case had a good shot? Yeah. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of layers to that. Um, I'll try to break it down as easily as possible. Um, but essentially the first thing is all of these contracts have very heavy handed and one-sided arbitration clauses. And again, to explain the legalese, what an arbitration clause is, is it is a escalation of conflict that precludes um, a lawsuit and precludes court, right? So basically, if you if you as a contestant say you were abused, exploited, something happened, even even something like sexual assault or violence, right? Um, these contracts wrap that up into the arbitration clause. And so, if the ev- if the production companies and the distri- distribution companies feel the evidence is strong enough, what they will do is under the arbitration clause, they will pay a settlement and then make them sign an NDA and because it's arbitration, it never gets into the public record. That's just part of arbitration, right? And it's very difficult to get around arbitration. But I think there were a couple things working in our favor. Like one, the fact that I didn't actually have a big platform um, enabled me to feel braver taking this on because I didn't have as much to lose, right? Um, and I, fi- I filed it as a class action. So it was something I was doing on behalf of everybody, not, not just for myself. And I really, don't, I really do not want this to be about me, right? I just happened to be in the position to push this forward. And the other thing that fell into place was, you know, the main contention, and I would, I would imagine one of the things they're denying is the fact, um, is the labor classification, right? So the reason why they can get away with not paying us with all of the, you know, missing meal breaks and all of these different things is because they classify us as contract laborers. And several months before we signed our contracts, um, there is like, there is a very common law test. Um, it's you know it's within the IRS and it's in the court systems have upheld this around the requirements you have to meet to be classified as a contract laborer. Um, but for a long time, um, you know, it wasn't strictly codified, right? It was more of you know in the courts. So a couple months before we signed our contracts, those those like requirements, the three requirements, um, and you can read it. It's called AB five. Um, in order to how to classify a contract employee, you have to meet all three of those before you can call someone a contract employee. And again, the case isn't settled. Um, we're, we're still moving forward. Um, I won't comment on the status, but there is a there is so much evidence to suggest that we should not have been contract employees that there was a law firm that decided to bring this forward and thinks we have a phenomenal case. And I think a rational person with no legal background could look at this, right? And say, no, you shouldn't be contract laborers. You should be full-time employees. And by the way, I mean, they've produced their own smoking gun in this case because they filed W-2s on our behalf and you don't file W-2s for contract laborers, right? So- No, you, no, you do nope. not. So no, ridiculous. E- either they're <clears throat> lying to the IRS or they're lying to us. Again, the, the lawsuit was filed on the basis um, that we shouldn't, have been classified as contract employees. And the moment you say we're not, in the moment you the moment you can prove we should have been employees, then it escalates to things like lost wages, penalties, right? It doesn't get directly at the abuse. It, it goes about that indirectly, right? We're not, we're not filing a tort around um, sleep deprivation. We're saying under California labor law, we should have gotten X number of breaks. And there are penalties associated with missing those breaks. And so I think the important thing about the lawsuit is it was a very critical step. And the reason why you haven't seen this before is because 
I'm guessing most of the allegations um, coming forward were more torts in nature, right? Um, being, mm-hmm. you know, a, a allegation of abuse or exploitation, which by the way, I got turned down by three different entertainment law firms, like trying to go that route. They're like, no, nope, we can't do anything for you. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I, I would imagine once those, once people come forward, those get settled in the arbitration clauses. We never hear about it. We hear little drips every now and then, like a rumor comes out, um, but it's not in the public record. So I think the reason why this hasn't happened before is this was the first opportunity, like right time, right place, my, right moment to actually get this out into the public record. Because when you violate a state law, when the allegation is violating a state law, um, it's really hard to keep that into arbitration, which is why we are able to file it in a public, you know, like file it publicly in the legal system. Um, and the, the important thing to remember is, again, the lawsuit's still ongoing. I'm optimistic about it. But by their nature, lawsuits, civil or criminal, right? They 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 recover damage done in the past, right? They make the they make the victims whole in one way or another. In in the case of civil litigation, it's it's entirely monetary, right? And so it's two things: it's making the victims whole, right? In this case, things like back pay, um, and it's it's imposing penalties on the perpetrators to make sure that they're discouraged from doing it in the future, right? But it doesn't actually change something in the future. And I'll tell you that the penalties laid out in the law for the employment things they're missing, it's it's like couch change for them, right? It's not gonna, right. it's not gonna like change their opinion of things. Um, so it's that's why we have to approach this from multiple angles. And the you can angle is forward looking, right? We're not, we're, we don't wanna, we, we really don't want to keep drudging up the past, although it's an important context and framing for why we're doing these things that we're doing, right? But we're really looking towards the future. And we're like, look, we can produce reality TV that people still enjoy. That is, people are, we're dramatic people. Like, <laughs> we're human beings. We create our own friggin' drama. Um, we don't, like, there's no need to produce this stuff in such horrible ways. So, I mean, the lawsuit was an important important first step, and it's an important continuing step, and it's critical that we see this through. But we also have to look to the future, and that's why Nick and I started, uh, decided to start the UCAN Foundation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And what are the specific aims of UCAN? Like, tell our listeners, yeah, what is the goal of this organization? So there are five things that we are we are offering as a service to reality TV contestants, whether they're cast, whether they're in production, whether it's post-production, whether it's post-show. We want to make sure that you have adequate mental health uh, support, and we will continue to advocate for that. We will offer services with um, legal volunteers that will help you review your contract so that you understand what you're getting into. Uh, We will make sure you understand your rights as a human being, uh, again, using our, our legal network. And then we're also putting together a network of cast members that have all been through this because we can only relate to each other. Nobody else can can understand what we've gone through. So we want to put that together so that there's like a safe, safe environment for people to communicate and not feel so isolated and alone. And then um, we want to be able to offer legal support in the event of a dispute, which maybe I'll get to be the first person to use that. But um, you know, those are the the, <laughs> the five main goals of what we offer right now. But our vision is literally to make sure that these simple five things are across all reality shows through, you know, whether that ends up being public policy, whether it ends up being, you know, labor laws, unionizing. We'll see where we go when we get there. 
Yeah, I was going to ask about unions because obviously, you know, there's the Writers Guild, there's SAG, there there are all of, for most entertainment, you know. Every other entertainment. Yeah, there is a guild um, or a union. So do you guys kind of see this as like the beginning of of agitating for for that maybe? I am not, I'm not calling it a a union movement yet. Um, But I think that when I think about you know, my experience organizing and the fact that we've already had multiple employment attorneys and union organizers reaching out, I, I think that that's going to be, um, you know, a, a really, really strong goal and movement if we can get, um, you know, the right people and, and, you know, free people from the fear that they have of speaking up. Yeah, we're, we're organizing a grassroots movement for worker rights. We'll call it what we want. (laughs) (laughs) Every time they, you know, they, they say something or there's a stupid article refuting with a stupid claim from Kinetic or every time someone attacks, attacks the movement, all it does is piss me off more and make me (laughs) dig my feet in the ground a little bit more. And that, you know, when you're leftist organizing, that's all you do is you get stepped on. So you learn to be very resilient. Yeah. That is, that is the history of, of leftist organizing in America, for sure. <laughs> um, but I think we have seen, I mean, we're, we were part of a union effort when we were at HuffPost years ago. Mm. And we have seen a sort of renewed union push in a lot of mm. industries that previously mm-hmm. have not been unionized, like the tech industry as well. And so this is a great moment, I think, in some ways when people have started to learn to think about like, oh, just because we thought that it was okay for this industry to not have a union, maybe it's actually not okay. Maybe we should be open to that and to try to really push that conversation forward. I agree. And we we overcame child labor. We used to think it was okay to make children work. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So like, it has to start somewhere, and it starts here with the UCAN Foundation and a grassroots effort because change never comes from the top down. It always comes from the bottom up. Right. And, and you know, the, yeah, the status quo of any industry seems insurmountable unless you look at history and you see the fact that, yeah, that's the entire labor movement exactly. in, you know, for all of American history. Um, there has always been kind of a push forward from workers to create better conditions. And that really is the only way that that change happens. Someone has to take the first step. Exactly. This is like slightly on a, a different topic, but I, it has been just like eating at me throughout this whole story and so I uh, unfolding and so I wanted to ask you guys about it while we had you which like it's come up a few times which is that you're not really supposed to under contract like question the edit that's presented the storyline that they've presented and we've seen on The Bachelor that contestants have historically been like incredibly tight-lipped until they're off contract about what happened behind the scenes or how the edit differed from their experience a contestant named Luke Parker was actually sued by yep. the production company behind the show last year and ordered to pay damages just for like shit talking the show basically mm-hmm. and doing unapproved media appearances. And I know that you guys have like stopped at certain points and I'm like, we're not going to say more about that. We don't want to go into that, but it does seem like we've seen a lot of love is blind contestants, including you guys and including like recent contestants from the the Seattle season. I know I had to reach out to Jackie because I felt so awful for her when the, the yeah. union was going to be live. I mean, it, it, and then the, the, <laughs> but then they like, it's not let my her story to tell the edit. Yeah. They let her on air, like they aired her basically being like, that didn't really happen the way it Mm -hmm. was shown. And so I'm curious, like, 
why we're seeing more, like, is there a more circumscribed set of information that you're prohibited from disclosing and you are, it is okay to say like, oh, a producer told me I had to do that or, oh, that was actually filmed at a different time or is it just that people have not gotten sued for making these little tidbits available and so people feel comfortable doing it again i'll i'll start from like the the legal perspective what i what i consider the legal perspective there and look if we are full-time employees which i think there's really good evidence for um there's whistleblower protections right Mm -hmm. and so if you've noticed you know nick and i tend to stick to a very strong narrative of discussing the abuse and exploitation we don't talk about the behind the scenes stuff off camera right we don't talk about the other narratives that weren't shown because that's not helpful to the the narrative of abuse and exploitation. But so I think it's a very strong case to be made that um, like there are whistleblower protections um, if, if push mm-hmm. comes to shove, right? And the other aspect of that is just more strategic. Um, I think it looks, given the climate and given all of the discussion around this right now, it would look really, really bad for someone to come after us to try to silence us when we talk about abuse and exploitation. Um, and I think... You know, I would almost welcome that because it would be such a terribly poor strategic move on their part. It would just continue to empower us at an even ex- more accelerated pace. Um, but that's that's my perspective for my limited time. I know Nick probably has a broader perspective given his 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 platform and how much longer he was on the show. Um, so I was always very careful, um, you know, and it caused conflict in my relationship too about what we we didn't didn't say because you know when you're married. It's not, they don't just come after one of you. They come after both of you. Your assets are one legally. So, you know, there was a lot of conflict in, in there about where to go. And I was very careful and I wanted to, I understood. I'm like, I signed a contract. This is going to be, you know, the story that they tell. We'll write our own story after it. That's what I always said. I'm like, we'll just write our own story after it. Like, let's just ignore it. Like, let's let it be. We'll write our own story after. And that's what people will remember. And as time went on and I, you know, even, even getting divorced, um, like we legally weren't supposed to get divorced yet. And, um, you know, I was very careful about that. And I called Kinetic and I'm like, you know, and Netflix, I'm like, Hey, like this is happening. I don't really have a lot of control of it. Can you, um, you know, I I just don't want to be sued. And (laughs) they assured me that, and that was pretty much the last time I've talked to any of them. Um, and you know, through everything that happened after that, I, I just, you know, losing my job, going through a very public um, divorce, and you know, just trying to to pick up the pieces from what this has done to my life, um, and doing that in, in a you know in a state of being sad that my marriage went the way that it did, and the grief of losing um, you know a very significant relationship, and then um, you know the public awful public comments and all that stuff. And I hit the point where I'm like, I didn't sign up for this. Like I signed up for a love experiment and I signed up and I was myself. I don't, I don't, I don't have anything. I mean, there's things I wish I would have done or said differently in a, in a small sense, but I don't have any regrets about anything that I've said or any of my behaviors. I stayed true to my character the whole time. There were some things they edited that I thought were misleading, which is fine. Um, but you know, realizing like how much that this took from me and quite frankly, what it did to Danielle that I'm like, I'm not going to sit here and take this. This is not in my character to sit here and take this. 
you know, it's like that, that quote, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. Well, they're fighting us now. So we've already skipped the first two and we're on number three. And so if, if they want to sue me, I'll wear it as a badge of honor and I will thank them for the platform to go and get more people behind this cause. And what are they going to sue me for? I don't have a job. I'm going to lose my condo in three months if I don't get one. And I'm just trying to help people. So they can keep, uh, yeah. they can, they can send, send that lawsuit over if they want to. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's really, I mean, it's great that you guys have started this foundation to to try to create all these supports, because I think you do often come off, contestants come off these shows, just like not sure if there are any options at all. And the thought that you right, guys know where to turn. have mm-hmm. put into like what your actual rights are, regardless of what they can brandish in the con in the contract, like what actually some of your options might be. That's really important when it comes to like pushing back on 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 the exploitation that that they get away with. It's totally true. You can't NDA away human rights. And you can't say we offer mental health services and support for you and then not do it. Like, I, no one checked in. You're part of the Netflix family now. That's what they would say. You're part of the family. No one checked in when I was getting, you know, ridiculed, railed, laid off, all of this stuff. No one checked in. No one checked in to You're see if I was okay. You're a strange family that they don't right. talk to anymore. Oh, well, I love so. when corporations tell oh, you that part of the you're family. family. <laughs> yeah, we have experienced that too. It's, so. it's always, yeah, we're like your yeah. aunt that your mom had a fight with 30 years ago and <laughs> you've never heard from her since. We don't even invite <laughs> you to Thanksgiving know. anymore, yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. Or we invite you and then we rescind the invitation. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we're really grateful that you guys are starting a really important and fraught conversation. And it really feels like, you know, we've been talking for almost two hours and this still is just really only the beginning. There is so much more. And I think so much beyond your individual stories. And I think that um, making this an issue with the system is, is going to be the most effective way to come at it. And so we yeah. are, we're grateful that you guys are doing that. Well, we're so for grateful for, for your support and giving us your platform. Um, you know, we couldn't we couldn't do it without these kind of discussions, interviews, right, to keep the momentum going. So um, I'm so grateful that you brought us on. Yeah, me too. I, I appreciate the opportunity to to speak to it because there's a lot of conversation going on about it right now. And even a lot of people don't really understand what's going on, what the UCAM Foundation is. They think it's a lawsuit. They So just giving us the opportunity to separate the two and clarify the, the mission and the goals is very helpful. Can you tell everyone where they can find you both and and your work and the foundation? Yeah, so um, you can the UCAN Foundation can be found at UCANFoundation.org, and that's U-C-A-N Foundation.org. And you'll see there's information about the board, about what we do, our mission. It reiterates everything we've talked about. And I want to be very clear, like, it's... It is a registered nonprofit. We can we are registered to accept donations for charity, and we comply with all of the regulations of the IRS Code five hundred one c three. Right, um, so we are truly a nonprofit. That's not just like propaganda um, on our website. So, and we we do rely on donations. Right, I think um, one of the things that I like to say is the amount of money that people pay subscription services to watch these shows. None of it goes towards the cast members. In fact, you could make a case that it continues this cycle of abuse and exploitation. So if if everyone who watched reality TV just donated one month 
of their subscription costs, just one month, um, we could solve this forever, right? And again, we're 100% transparent where every single dollar goes. And we're, you know, we're going to publish our financial statements. We're going to show where things go. We're going to comply with all the relevant um, requirements of a nonprofit. And I want to add to that too. What is the money going to go to? There's going to be some standard operation stuff like keeping our website afloat, hiring some uh, contractors to help us with the website, help us with content. I'm running our our Instagram right now, which you can find at the underscore you can you can underscore foundation. Um, you can find us on Instagram. I'm running that. That's my third Instagram account. I'm running after my own and my dogs. <laughs> Um, so, you know, the donations are going to go to some operational stuff, but ultimately what this needs to go to is, and I, I know from experience on, on my season, some people don't have insurance. They don't have the resources to get the mental health support, to get the counseling. They don't have the resources to get a lawyer to review a contract for them. And what we want to do is, is be able to fund those types of activities and those basic human needs. In addition to maybe if someone does have insurance, finding them mental health support and legal support for the state that they live in. Um, and, and, you know, in order to do that, we have to build this network up. We have to have the donations so that we can support people. And there's an illusion out there that reality TV stars are just instantly rich I can assure you there's no Netflix Brinks truck that backs up to my <laughs> condo or anywhere and gives gives me money. So um, some of these people, especially if they don't monetize or they haven't figured out how to monetize or they haven't had the opportunity to monetize yet because they just finished, like they need support and they're not getting it from most of these reality TV shows. And you can find yeah. me at, oh, go ahead. No, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you can find me at nthompson513 on Instagram. I'm nickthompson513 on TikTok, which I've recently become more active on. Uh, I also encourage people to connect with me on LinkedIn if you're interested in my takes on um, corporate America and and uh, <laughs> the tech industry specifically. And or in treating- casting you on another reality yeah, show. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like that's the, the best <laughs> place to slide into your DMs. Yeah. So I, I think that um, starting this has ended my role, my run as a reality <laughs> TV contestant. I can't imagine why. <laughs> yeah, shock. Yeah, nope, nope. No perfect match for you, Nick. No perfect match for me. (laughs) Well, we all make sacrifices. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you guys again for for talking uh, to us about your your advocacy work and everything you're doing. And we do encourage everyone to check out the You Can Foundation and consider supporting. We get a lot of joy and some depression from watching these shows. And um, that comes from the work of, of reality actors as well. So thank you guys so much again. This has been really a really great conversation. Thanks thank so much. so much. And on that note, that is it for this episode of Love to See It with Emma and Claire. Thanks, of course, to our guests, Jeremy Hartwell and Nick Thompson. Love to See It is produced by us, Claire Fallon and Emma Gray and Stitcher. This episode was edited by Talon Stradley. Our theme music is by Tamar Haviv and our art is by Celine Chang. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. If you like our show, please remember to follow us, rate us five stars and leave a review. And of course... Tell all your good friends about our show. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at claireandemmapod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and TikTok at Love to See It Pod and Instagram at Claire and Emma Pod. And you can find our newsletter, Rich Text, on Substack at claireandemma.substack.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Claire E. Fallon. And I'm at Emma Lady Rose. We'll be back next week with another rom com rewatch. Pretty intrigued.
Stitcher. You see where your business can go. To get there, you may need another 10 trucks. At Century Insurance, we put more than 115 years of industry experience to work to help protect you as you launch a new delivery service or expand into a new region and reach your business goals. Century, right by you. Property and casualty coverages are underwritten and safety services are provided by a member of the Century Insurance Group, Stevens Point, Wisconsin. For a complete listing of companies, visit Century.com. Policies, coverages, benefits, and discounts are not available in all states. See policy for complete coverage details.